I should have known that the Arabs had good reason for shunning the nameless city, the city told of in strange tales but seen by no living man. Yet I defied them and went into the untrodden waste with my camel. I alone have seen it, and that is why no other face bears such hideous lines of fear as mine. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I think last time we recorded, I'd been singing out late in the evening, so... My voice may have been a bit shaky, but I'm back on form today. Do you think it affected the quality of, of your dulcet tones? Uh, what, the, <laughs> what, doing the podcast, did it affect my singing or vice versa? <laughs> yeah, so, so I meant, um, do you think the karaoke affected your recording? But maybe the other way around. Yeah, that could have been a fear. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think obviously the content of what I was saying was still red hot. Uh, just of course, yeah, <laughs> maybe a tiny horse. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today, Frank? Well, um, somewhat ironically, given that the, both of us on the recording, we're going to talk about playing solo. And I think before we dive in too far, we should just define slightly what we mean by playing solo. And what I had in mind for this episode was really talking about playing what's sometimes referred to as true solo, where you're only controlling one investigator. Because some people like to play two-handed, so they're they're playing solo, it's just them, but they're actually controlling two different investigators. But what we wanted to focus on in this episode was the true solo experience, which is only controlling one investigator and trying to make your way through scenarios, a campaign, by yourself. So you're a lot more, a lot more qualified to talk about true solo than I am. I've only played a handful of games, I think, in over the course of... What was it like? Nearly two years. They're actually true solo. I'm generally playing three or four players, possibly two. But you've played that a lot, haven't you? True solo? Yeah, uh, I think it's where the way I've racked up the most hours playing true solo. Uh, it comes purely from a, an enthusiasm wanting to play and I don't have a, a regular group and we don't have a regular game night. So... Even though I play quite a lot with other people, it's on a more ad hoc basis. I think a lot of people are playing True Solo as well, actually. I think it's, it's interesting with a... Oh, I said interesting. Drink. <laughs> with, a, with a co-op LCG, there's, there's not that same scene of organised play. So lots of people meeting up at regular tournaments to play each other. So it's hard to get a good grasp on how everyone's playing the game. I'd be interested yeah. if, if Fantasy Flight have any of that information, if they do customer surveys or whatever, and they have a, have a feel for how many people sit playing it by themselves, how many people have full collections, how many people meet up with strangers and play it. That kind of information would be really interesting, but we have no idea. Um, do you remember Matt did that survey uh, coming up to Blood on the Altar or just after Blood on the Altar when that had oh, come out? Yeah, of course he did. And do you remember he, he shared some of the information from that, and it was such an interesting range of... XP experiences and, you know, how many resolutions people were hitting, who they were and weren't rescuing from Blood on the Altar, all of that kind of thing. But I think you're completely right that there's this silent majority of people who are playing within their own homes, 
either because they don't have a regular game group or because it's more complicated to go out and meet people to play than it is to play just by themselves. And that's definitely an appeal of the game as well. You can buy this game and you don't need anyone else to play with. You can just sit down and start playing out of the box. So it's not that this playing solo is some sort of variant of the game. I think it's baked into what the experience is like from from the off. If that describes you, if you're someone who doesn't have any connection really to the wider community around the LCG or any LCG, drop us an email and just chat about, tell us about your experiences playing it and, you know, it'd be really good to hear from you. Because it's a side of the game I personally haven't seen much. I mean, you've obviously sat down and, and played solo, but you're you're still, I mean, a lot of those you're posting up for everyone to listen to as well, aren't you? Ah, some of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And And one of the things that I still then get is that I'll still then talk to you about, say a resolution I've got or how much experience I have and what I want to invest in or what's working or what's not working. So I'm perhaps I'm not having the experience of sitting at the table with someone else playing, but maybe having those conversations around the game. The other thing I've noticed talking to, to the few people I've spoken to who mainly play the game by themselves is that also leads into this feeling of not really knowing are your deck choices good or not? Are you over committing to tests or not? You kind of have no context within which to judge whether or not you're making good choices. But what I've realized in then playing with other people is that actually it's quite easy to settle into a rhythm of that everyone commits to a certain level and actually gambling or taking the risks can be useful. So some one of the things that I like to bring to the table if I've been playing by myself a lot is that ability to go, you know what, I'm going to just try and be lucky for this test and, and, and undershoot it. Or... You, know, you sort of can break down some of the established patterns within a group of play like this or play like that, always commit to plus two or, or whatever it is, because you can you can sort of wing it to a certain extent in a group in the way that you maybe can't in solo or that maybe you get established patterns of play in solo. So we've started to dive into the detail here, Frank. Do we want yeah. to start off, take a step back and look at the top level differences between playing solo and playing multiplayer? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, Thank you. What are the top level differences between playing solo and playing multiplayer, Peter? <laughs> I think I asked you that. <laughs> you said well, we should look at it, and I'm asking you to look at it. Yeah. Well, to me, the main difference would be in balancing your party, right? So, more so than anything else, you need a deck when you're playing solo that is capable of dealing with everything you have to do in a scenario. Mm-hmm. If I build, yeah. at the simplest level, when I'm playing multiplayer, I could have a two-player party of, say, Roland and Daisy, and my Roland's able to fight quite well, and my Daisy's able to clue quite well. And while I might still want to have some tools in one deck to do the other role, I can leave fighting the bigger enemies to Roland when he's got his weapons out, and I can leave investigating the high shroud locations to Daisy when she's got, you know, Milan and a magnifying glass out. Yeah, yeah. In in solo, I have to either I have to compromise and find a way around all those challenges that present themselves. So either find a way around the enemies that are there if I'm not able to fight them, or find a way to get clues if I'm not able to investigate the locations. Yeah, that's always struck me as one of the most challenging bits. I think it's a much more rigorous deck-building challenge. I don't know if it's a harder challenge, but it certainly means that you have to have borne it in mind when you approach deck-building that 
one of the things that's striking is if you show me a Zoe deck and it's just all weapons and damage, I'm going to assume that that's a multiplayer deck. Because if you're trying to go into solo and you've just ignored a whole part of what you need to do in this game, it's probably not going to work very well. So I think the transition, if you're a multiplayer player and you're used to building really fine-tuned decks that do one thing, moving to solo might be pretty tricky. I suppose the counterpoint toward to that point about needing to be able to do a bit of everything is that normally in solo you don't have to be able to do a bit of everything to the same degree or that what I really mean is that there are normally fewer clues and big boss enemies have less health and things like that which mean that it can feel quite daunting I think switching from multiplayer to solo because you think how am I possibly going to be able to do 20 damage to this enemy or get eight clues from this high shroud location but normally in solo and maybe it sounds it seems really trivial to say it but normally in solo those high shroud locations have one or two clues and those bigger enemies have five to eight health while they propose a specific challenge it's a smaller challenge or it's in a magnitude smaller and and what you might find is that a a character who's doing fighting in a, a larger multiplayer game does the bulk of the fighting. So when an enemy with... What's the easy way of describing a, a thing that's multiplied by the number of investigators? An I. Yeah, health per investigator um, enemy. Yeah, yeah. an H, HPI enemy. <laughs> yeah, HPI, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so when an HPI enemy shows up, you'll see maybe that's got, say, 5I health. That's 10 health. So it's still one character who's going to be fighting it. But he's got to do, well, the character's got to do twice the damage that your solo character would have to do. Yeah. You're still doing all the fighting, but you've now got that multiplier when you're playing in, in multiplayer. Yeah, yeah. So what, what might happen in multiplayer in that situation is that all of the other characters who can do a little bit of damage, they do their small amounts of damage, and then the character who's the dedicated fighter does all of the rest. Yeah. But in solo... If you're someone who only does a little bit of damage, you have to be ready at that point to do all of the the damage that you can do or have a way of getting away or, or something like that. But my, my counterpoint, I don't want to undercut what was a really important point you made there, which is that playing solo starts at the deck building stage. It doesn't start that you turn up with your multiplayer deck and then no one else turns up to play, so you end up playing solo. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to build alone before you get to play alone. So, are we considering those the two main differences then between solo and multiplayer? I guess what the other thing I've always been struck by is when you play solo, it's a lot faster. Yeah. Not only like it, it feels odd when an agenda has you need one clue to advance it, or an act. Yeah. Uh, sorry, an act. Sorry, not an agenda. Yeah. So you just move to a location, investigate, and then. That's two actions to advance the act. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I think you need to... The, the the solo player needs to be able to do more things, have a range, be able to cover all of their bases, which means you lean towards generalization rather than specialization. That's definitely one point. And then the other difference in solo is the amount you need to do is diminished. So you said you were struck by how quickly you could advance agendas. Has that ever, this may be a leading question, but has that ever caught you out playing solo? Uh, I mean, it's more of an 
overall feel of the game. I guess when I play multiplayer, I'm spending a lot of time with my other players discussing what I'm going to do. And then we kind of plan out our turns quite carefully between a lot of us, even if there's only two players, we'll have a bit of back and forth before anyone takes any actions in order mm, to decide yeah. what the best course of action for everyone to do is. But in yeah. solo, you sort of dive straight into it. And I, I've caught myself out on occasions just being like, oh, well, I'll do this then, without thinking through everything that's going to happen and happen as a consequence. And then you can easily end up dead because of it. Yeah, uh, you can very easily end up dead. Uh, that's something I actually wanted to raise about solo was that going with this need to generalise, there's also this risk of that you have to bear the brunt of any mistake or unlucky draw or whether that's from the chaos bag or from the encounter deck. And I think playing solo, one of the ramifications of that is that there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've decided to race through the act deck, because you can, because it's very easy, but even in the gathering, say, you can scoop up the clues really quickly. When the ghoul priest arrives in the gathering, if you're not ready for it in solo, you can't have someone else engage the ghoul priest off you while you look for your combat solutions or while you run to the door. You're you're essentially stuck. And that's always that's always taken me by surprise how suddenly helpless you can be if you don't have the exact answer in hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. really leans into in solo for me, certainly, it leads into sort of solution cards. So in my Ceph live play, Think on Your Feet was really useful because if I draw an enemy early and I'm not set up to deal with it, being able to not be in the same location as the enemy and have a bit of breathing room is is super important in the way that in multiplayer, Think on Your Feet, I think I've only ever used it once because normally someone can take an enemy off me or there's someone to deal with it. I couldn't agree more there. And my some of my solo experience have been you draw an enemy at the wrong time and then you're totally shafted yeah. there's this huge enemy that you can't deal with you don't have the exact answer to is sitting on you and you can't take any other actions you can't find the answer because you can't draw cards so yeah you sort of just and then you can you can just you know fire actions away trying to evade it or or punch it quite futilely if you haven't got the skill to be able to do it and you've suddenly wasted a whole load of time dealing with something that was just bad luck you getting yeah and the knock-on then is that you don't have anyone else to rely on to to recover that time because even if say you didn't have a fighter in your pair while dealing with a big enemy one of you could at least still be looking for an answer or finding clues and advancing the act while the other one of you wastes time but what's more likely to happen in solo is once you've taken that hit it's going to be a real scramble to come back unless you have cards in your deck that are really going to accelerate you through the final things you need to do so that's where for me powerful cards like elusive a reliable weapon and guardian that's going to give you that extra damage uh cards like lucky and look what i found in survivor any of these cards that are going to turn potentially debilitating situations sort of back round to your favor become really useful as ways of kind of either compressing actions or recovering from a setback. But there's a couple I mean there's a couple of different ramifications for having nowhere to hide as well. It's not simply that you can get stuck dealing with an enemy. It's also that that the enemy doesn't just tax you in terms of health and sanity but also taxes you as you say in terms of time and might also tax you in terms of 
resources. But the, the sort of the more passive knock-on effect of that is it means that when you're playing solo, you really need to prioritize when you set up, when you start a scenario, what your solution is for enemies, because you don't want to be caught flat-footed where you've drawn a hunting night gaunt or something you can't deal with. So that leads into a, a slightly different question, which is which investigators are better at playing true solo? I mean, what I was going to ask is, is it okay that there are some that are better at being solo? Is, is, is that, you know, are you on board with that as a way that the game is designed? Personally, yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't mind going into it uh, sort of being clear-eyed and thinking, right, what are the challenges going to be with this investigator playing solo? And I'm probably not the kind of person who announced this person is impossible to solo with, but I might be the one saying, I've got to think really carefully here. There was a really interesting Zoe solo deck that was doing the rounds during Carcosa that had Alyssa Graham as one of its ways of getting clues, because not not simply because it gives a, an intellect boost, but also because it gives you a bit of control of the encounter deck. So you can then position yourself in locations with clues if you know an enemy's coming so that you can trigger evidence, or if you know an enemy's not coming, you can make sure you're in the right place. So that, that I thought was really interesting and a really good example of teching a deck specifically for solo and thinking about what would what would help and it also that that Alyssa choice feeds into zoe's ability in a number of ways and also tries to patch up one of her deficiencies which is her intellect yeah what about you do do you do you think that there are just some investigators you can't solo with i I wouldn't say that that there are certainly ones where you are making your life more difficult by trying to solo with them and that's fine if, if if that's if that's the experience you're after. I think that's absolutely to be celebrated. It's more like we've got different investigators that support different ways of playing the game, as well as different playstyles. And I think yeah. that's 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 great. I certainly think there are some investigators who lend themselves more to playing solo. Yes, I've got yeah, one I think one, so. one that springs to mind certainly for me is Pete and Duke. Yeah, because that inbuilt ability to both investigate and fight as well as having uh his willpower at, at four as well that's it's, it's a really nice starting point isn't it and agility at three and agility like the defensive three, yeah. stats are pretty decent and the, the fact that duke can be used say to investigate only once a turn without you know using pete's ability that's less of a hindrance because of, often you know Locations might only have one clue on them, potentially only have two clues on them. Mm. So it's not yeah. as much of a tax on, on his, even if he's the primary, well, the only person gathering the clues. Yes, yeah. In a in a four-player setting, Ashkan Pete's normally the, the sort of secondary cluer. He's a sort of bit of a generalist, isn't he? Because he can do a bit of everything, but nothing to sort of a huge degree. But in yeah. solo, you're set up immediately. What I said about the ramifications of how do you deal with an enemy in solo, you know, Ashkan Pete's amazing in solo because you don't need to think about have I found a weapon, have I found a way of getting clues in my opening hand. You can almost start with an opening hand of anything, almost, not quite, and you're already ready to go. You know, the, the 30 cards in your deck can just be duke fuel <laughs> if you want yeah. them to be. You just keep going with that. We mentioned Zoe having low intellect and that being a challenge for Solo, but actually what I was thinking of in the flip side was how difficult it, it historically has been to Solo as a seeker because 
even though their intellect is great and they can handle the, the one part of advancing a scenario which is getting clues normally historically their physical stats particularly their combat have been low and that means that enemies can really ruin a seeker's day in the way that say soloing as a rogue you have some kind of a solution for dealing with enemies so i think that's starting to change with seeker but yeah historically that that was a a real challenge if you wanted to do daisy solo back in the corset days that was a really nasty thing to do because there were just so few options for how what she did if she drew an enemy you're essentially hoping you had mind over matter in hand and could fluke your way away yeah so so who else do you think lends themselves lends themselves well to uh, being soloed with frank Ash Campete was definitely my go-to for a while, but I would actually leap now to probably to Wendy Adams. Like Ashcan, she has a really decent willpower, and she also has a great agility of four. She doesn't have the inbuilt cluing ability, but her ability just provides so much consistency with what she's trying to do, and the fact that she gets to reuse cards once her amulet's in play is just so strong that, yeah, I've I've had a lot of fun playing with her. I think it's the combination of her two factions as well. The rogue cards, there's a lot of trickiness there that can deal with enemies in non-fighty ways, which is great. And then the survivor cards are so good at shoring up the weaknesses of a deck and provide so many options for getting clues, passing tests, a bit of movement, a bit of evasion. So yeah, as a as a character, she can be really well-rounded with lockpicks now as well you have a great solo clue getting card which i really like yeah yeah and actually i think i remember the penny dropping for me playing solo playing her through the corset campaign and there was a really good write-up that someone had done where it suggested that actually didn't matter how many cultists you got in midnight masks because in devourer below you could you could simply move past them all into the ritual site, either with cunning distraction or survival instinct. And there are like plenty of cards in Survivor that can actually help you with a mob of people turning up as yeah. long as you've killed the hunters. And I just remember thinking like, wait, what? You don't have to kill every XP enemy and get, you know, clean sweep every single scenario? Well, that's interesting because that goes on to a, uh, uh, onto another point which is that potentially in solo, you earn less experience. It's just harder to have all the actions to spare to go around to those locations, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've found as well, like I listening to people in the community saying Delve Too Deep was this phenomenal card and the number of times that it's burnt me in solo because it feeds into the problems that we were talking about, that if you draw an untimely encounter card, it can completely ruin what you're trying to do and Delve Too Deep helps you draw more of those cards. And also it's a card that is never going to be the solution to your problem. Yeah. It's an yeah. iconless card that doesn't doesn't advance your current board state at all. So yeah, I've been really burnt by that in Solo. It really put me off that card. In multiplayer, Delta Deep is great. You can have a character who goes off and delves and everyone else is benefiting from it and can normally deal with the consequences. But more generally speaking in Solo... Yeah, you might you might get that lower XP threshold. You might be just trying to get through the scenario as best you can. 
And that then means that you have to be a little bit more selective in what you're putting into your deck as well. I've played solo Roland where I invested in a lightning gun and then never got to play it (laughs) because it was, you know, so often you don't have the time to just keep setting up and make sure you have enough resources for this six cost weapon. You're just, you're just stuck with it in hand as you hack away at things with machete and keep moving as best you can. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean maybe that survivors are more suited? Yeah, maybe. That's that's an interesting point, that survivors generally need XP in smaller doses, so it might work quite well. Potentially. I think also it just... If you accept that you're not going to get all of the XP in a scenario, it's actually quite a freeing feeling as well. When I've played in larger groups, sometimes you do get a little bit kind of victory point goggles on, yeah, yeah. You don't leave a location until it's completely cleared out. You don't, you know, you maybe delay a little bit waiting for an XP enemy off the deck or, or whatever that is. And I think the game can more or less be played where you're not just just hanging on to have the the, the best possible XP score. You're you're going right. I've got I've got five this scenario, four this scenario. That'll do, and moving on. Yeah. Speaking of taking apart expectations and taking apart preconceptions. One of the things that I found Solo is really useful for is making you realise there are other ways of playing and there are ways of building your deck that wouldn't work in multiplayer. And particularly recently, I think there's been one investigator that does that more than any other. And that is Calvin Wright. Yes, yes. I believe you've also played as Calvin Solo. Uh, I have, yes. I played through the beginning of the Forgotten Ages, Calvin. How was that? I, it's fascinating. <laughs> he, he he approaches the game in a very different way, and he can it can really swing back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is a great example of taking one of the biggest fears you have playing solo, which is drawing that early big enemy that you have no answer for. He takes that and flips it on his head. And goes, great, a big enemy, just what I need to beat me up a bit. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, it's kind of kind of terrifying how you want those hits. You want to lean into starting in a, in a position that another investigator would find completely untenable. If I started Untamed Wilds as Daisy and drew Boa Constrictor, I'd be like, oh no! <laughs> you know, I'd probably keep Mind Over Matter in hand just for that situation. But as Calvin, you're, you're laughing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Until you're nearly dead. Until you're nearly <laughs> dead. And and it, and it can change so fast because he wants to be really close to to the edge effectively, doesn't he? Mm, yeah. So yeah. so yeah, he he really rides that line in in a in a kind of in a really interesting way, I think. Yeah. Please drink, listeners. We've um Oh god, I said it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about Calvin and the way that his deck or his style transitions within a scenario and it can happen suddenly very quickly. I think you can be caught flat-footed in solo where all of your fail by two cards, like look what I found or dumb luck. Once your stat line is up to four or five agility and you've got a fight or flight in hand or some of the desperate skill cards, suddenly those cards are all useless. They're just, they're just there for icons in the way that, yeah, your stats can get your stats can can make certain cards in your hand sort of defunct 
which is re- really interesting yeah. as a as a style. Oh, I said it as well. <laughs> Through all of this, though, I'm I'm aware that slightly it ends up sounding like everything's harder in solo than in multiplayer. And to a certain extent, I think playing solo is harder. I think because you're at the the whims of the vagaries of a bad draw, either in your own deck or the encounter deck or a bad token pull, it can be really punishing. But it's worth bearing in mind that there are some things that actually you could probably do better in solo. Yes. Like what? <laughs> I was going to give you the chance to dive in and say... <laughs> well, I, one thing is... What can happen is occasionally you can get an encounter card in the mythos phase, which doesn't phase you. Mm. You pardon the phrase. Just for whatever reason, it doesn't hit your character. And they're a lot more common in solo because it, it, it you you draw through all the cards effectively. So one that might have gone to your, you know, another player would come to you instead. So something that, you know, wouldn't hit might hit them but wouldn't hit you doesn't go to them so it does go to you if you see what i'm trying to say yeah and also if you carry some encounter cancelling cards like forewarned or test of will or water protection you're always going to be able to use that on the ones you don't want to see you're never going to have that risk are you of should i cancel this or should i wait in case you draw something worse for me to cancel with my water protection well even even if you can with the level zero water protection you can only cancel your own encounter cards yeah, yeah. so maybe you're there Banking on not on an ancient evils not coming up. Oh yeah. And when you're yeah. playing a multiplayer, you're like, well, okay. First of all, we want it not to come up, but then we want it to come up for someone who's able to cancel it. Uh, and I've had mm. scenario like we um, first time we played the Forgotten Age, that exact thing happened to us. Like we would have been fine if anyone but one person drew an ancient evils, and then that person drew the ancient evils. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do. And there's nothing yeah. you can do. Yeah. Yeah. In multiplayer, also a card that might be a, a dud for you might be really nasty for someone else. So, you know, you draw a locked door. In multiplayer, the the clue getter could be over on the location that's low shroud and has loads of clues and a victory point, And suddenly that's locked. And you, the person who could break the door, is at the other side of the map and needs to head over. Whereas in solo, the chances of you having opened a location, not got the clues... Or, or left it and then be be planning to come back is is less likely. So yeah, there's there's a there's definitely a strength there that you can avoid some of you can avoid some of the ramifications of having to deal with a flood of cards every mythos phase. And also, chances are you can avoid some of the synergies of the encounter deck firing because there are just fewer chances. For that to happen. I mean, yeah. how often these days, this is just a side point, how often do these days do you see in four player only four encounter cards being drawn in the mythos phase? I feel like the amount of surge or conditional surge on treacheries has gone up and that often you're ending up seeing five or six cards per encounter phase if you're playing four player. Is that Have you seen the same thing? I guess so, yeah. It, I, I think we talked about Surge some time ago, didn't we? Yeah, on our Encounter deck episode. Yeah, and typically it's in place to make sure that something actually happens rather than you destroying a card which does nothing and then mm. discarding it straight away. But yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe you're right. Um, there's a more reliable hit of Encounter cards on people. 
And we've got, we're getting more and more cards, player cards, which have an effect for drawing an encounter card. Or, you know, some manipulation of the encounter cards. On the Hunt, for instance. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of. I mean, On the Hunt, I think, is a really powerful solo card. I've said before, if you see intellect and combat icons on a card, that's probably a sign that it's a good like progress card. And On the Hunted Roland, he wants to kill enemies to get clues. He compresses all of his abilities into one thing. And you can avoid some of the nasty treacheries from an encounter deck and fish for that weenie enemy with On the Hunt, which will then get you a clue. So he he becomes really useful at kind of well on the hunt allows his ability to fire, which is really powerful. Yeah, yeah, and we've just seen come out scene of the crime as well, which is another great Roland card for that exact situation. You can combo them. Yeah, yeah. Get would that be three clues? You'd get two for scene of the crime, having hunted up an enemy and then killed the enemy for a clue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, chances of a three clue location in solo is slimish, but yeah, that might might be the case. Do it in um, the hidden chamber and blood on the altar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else we want to talk about in particular? Uh, I can't think of anything else. I think I just wanted to emphasise that it feels very different playing solo, and I was a little bit surprised how different it is. Obviously, you miss out on things like committing cards to other players and miss out on the conversation around what do I do or how do I resolve a situation. But more than that, you're really rewarded by knowing your own deck, by knowing how a scenario is going to go, and also by having options, by being able to respond to things in different ways so that as a scenario tests you and pushes you pushes you in different ways, you have ways of of responding to it, which I really, really enjoy. Yeah, yeah and I, I think I really appreciate the flexibility that's there. So everyone is able to enjoy the game in their own way. So we see people, you know, buying up the collect, buying up the collection, but not sure that they're going to have regular partners to play with. You can always play by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what we're what we're seeing with the labyrinth events that I've been doing in London is players who would normally play in a play group of one or two coming out to meet other players and that's something I've actually enjoyed the most is lurking near tables as people are talking and they're seeing the side of the game that they don't normally see at our first ever event one table did particularly well and the players thought that probably it was because all four of them were solo players and they built four decks that could kind of hold their own and knew what they were doing and they'd made sure that they'd built decks that complemented each other but they hadn't done that thing where they'd lent into you know, you only fight, you only pass agility tests, you only get clues. They kind of had a mixture. And as a result, it meant that they were this really well-balanced team. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they, they had to actually work quite hard at committing cards to each other's tests because they all were sort of knew what they were doing and, and had it set. But it was, yeah, it was really fun fun to watch. I think, I think solo teaching you that lesson of self-sufficiency is actually a really useful thing to carry through into multiplayer are um playing yesterday our finn and mateo group they both can kind of survive by themselves particularly once mateo has found his spells and that means that we're almost playing solo we're both rushing around the map doing our own thing and it's rare that we're helpless and going can you come and take this thing off me whereas (laughs) playing as my norman deck I'm essentially crying whenever I see an enemy and just hoping that someone will come and 
Come and save you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a willpower treachery, though. I don't mind that. An intellect <laughs> treachery. Yes, please. But, yeah, Norman will build into that. We didn't mention Mystic. A final shout out to Mystics. Mystics can be great in solo because, broadly speaking, they have a very high defensive stat in their willpower. But the risk with Mystic is if you don't find your spells, you can be really up against it. Absolutely, yeah. And you should take that into account when you're deck building. Either ways to find those spells as soon as possible or some other tools to help you survive until you do. Yeah. I mean, that applies all the time with Mystic anyway, but especially so in Solo because you don't have someone else to pick up the slack if you can't if those spells aren't forthcoming early in the game. Yes, what, what I've found playing Mystic Solo is that often I lean more into my agility than I thought I would and Agnes... Akachi and Mateo all have agility three, so actually they can get to a decent evade spot up to sort of five if you have the right cards for it, and that that is really helpful as a treading water device until you've got the spells you need, until you feel prepared. The other thing I find in solo is that right of seeking is can be less useful because you don't always need to scoop up two clues, so finding ways of getting single clues. You know, I often end up with flashlight or maybe a newspaper, say, if you're playing Agnes, just as a way of boosting your intellect for those single clues or lowering the shroud. Yeah, that's a little side point. <laughs> okay. Right. Should we do this patron question I have? Oh, yeah. Go on. Hit me with it. You haven't prepared me for this one. Yeah, I know. Right. This is a question from our patron, Nathan. He says, I'm not sure how to make this more of a question than a discussion, but... He wants us to answer it anyway. How can one, while playing solo, succeed with a seeker or one of the less combat-orientated rogues or survival classes? I can't seem to wrap my head around doing a solo campaign with Wendy or Daisy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think there's a very good episode of Drawn to the Flame about solo <laughs> play. That would be a good first, the first thing to listen to. Yeah, I hope it's a good episode. We'll have to <laughs> so, so come what in would, and edit this bit. What were the two? Uh, investigators you mentioned in particular Daisy and Wendy Wendy I, I think Wendy's actually probably in pretty a pretty good position solo right mm. um, yeah because she's got lots of tools to not have to deal with <laughs> deal with enemies yeah um, she can she can move away from them with elusive she can evade them use cards like waylay to get yeah. rid of them all together uh, obviously in a straight up fight against a, a kind of inverted commas boss monster She's going to struggle a bit there, but hopefully you'll have things like backstab and sneak attack to help you, mm, which can really yeah. like do a burst of damage. And that actually reminds me of something I wanted to say and have forgotten until now. Thank you, Nathan. One of the other things I take into account when I build in solo is I look at the stat line of the investigator I'm building for their weak points rather than for their strengths. Because in multiplayer, you might be like, right, this character has one agility, I'm just going to take all agility tests on the chin and I'll leave the evading to other people. But in solo, you can't necessarily do that. So you either think, how do I shore up that weakness? Or you make a conscious effort not to deal with it. So in Wendy, that might be taking a fire axe so you can get up to seven combat. Or, uh, say, a baseball bat and using fight or flight to give yourself a massive boost once you've taken enough horror. Or it might be saying, I'm not going to take any combat tests at all, and all my fighting I'm going to do through agility. And as long as you've as long as long you've identified what you think the weak stat is and 
thought about how you're going to deal with that stat, I think that you're in a better place than if you identify your weak stat and think, I'm not going to think about that at all because I'm just going to lean into my high intellect or my high willpower or whatever it is. That's a really good point, I think. And maybe that's the underlying difference between a solo deck and the multiplayer deck, is that the multiplayer deck can lean into just the strengths of the investigator, whereas a solo deck has to consider their weaknesses as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a much more succinct way of saying what I was trying to say. I'm just thinking of, you know, you know those cases when you're playing a Guardian, you're like, shall I take evidence? And then you think, well, actually, I've got so many other clue-getting players in my group that really evidence I could just be packing in more combat to my deck. And then you might get hit by a scenario where each investigator needs to get a clue. And you as Zoe with your two intellect is like, um, I have no idea how I'll do that. <laughs> and having that tech in there, it might dilute the focus of your deck, but it would be useful anyway. How about Daisy? How do you solo with Daisy? I mean, again, that, that's a good that's a good question. You can Thank certainly you. build Daisy in a more combat heavy direction by using the mystic card she's got access to. So I would be tempted to go with, say, Shriveling and something like... Well, you've got a few cards in Seeker, which are really good. So you've got uh, I've Got a Plan and Mind Over Matter. And you're talking about enemies here, right? This is yeah, that's particularly Daisy's enemies. weakness, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I think... I mean, intellect tests, obviously she can ace, uh, just mm. you know as she is. And then once you've got a few experience, Higher Education is a fantastic card for Daisy. I mean... It's a fantastic card for everyone who can take it. But Daisy in particular, because that lets her leverage her mystic cards and, you know, pump a load into intellect tests if she really needs to succeed with, like, a, a glyphs or something like that. So for enemies, you can then use the mystic cards and some of those secret tricks to deal with them. I actually think you could do a build for Daisy, which had two shriveling and then two mists as the four spell assets. Mm, yeah. And if an enemy isn't a must-kill enemy... Mist is really useful for the extra movement as well. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Seeker's not short on movement, but yeah. For Seeker Solo, there's an extra tip I would have, which is that think about what your first scenario is going to be in a campaign and how much time you'll have. Because getting Acidic Icor as a way of shoring up a combat weakness is really useful, but you can only do that really at the first scenario if you can get at least 4 XP and you have time in that scenario. So I would always opt to play extracurricular activity first in Dunwich because I think it's a slightly longer scenario. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, I mean, you can bust through it with clues as well. To give you time to get the, uh, the, 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 the both the solution and the experience points you need. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, I would go that way. I mean, curtain call would be very hard as Daisy. And one of the ways of doing curtain call as a seeker is going so quickly that you don't need to worry about dealing with the royal emissary repeatedly but yeah that that would be trickier i think i mean my solo ta- tactic for curtain call is just to get defeated as quickly as possible and then i can just move on from it you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's failings okay in solo you know like we said you don't you don't need ex- you don't need any xp right for a scenario <laughs> but yeah for seeker if you're going to go Acidic Icor, which does go a long way towards shoring up that, that combat deficiency in Seekers, thinking about how you dedicate the time early on to getting it is is useful. 
and I'd be well maybe with Daisy if I was running shriveling I'd maybe prioritize higher education first but I think if I was playing Rex or Min and I wanted to go acidic I-Core I think I'd get the I-Core before higher ed just for that use yeah 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 I think that's fair I think it's the first thing I bought with my Ursula solo campaign as well I think and we were actually talking about this weren't we recently on chat you know how how as a seeker do you beat the gathering what's your way of doing it because in the gathering if you get all four clues solo to advance the ghoul priest arrives and three of those clues have been spent so i've got a plan is only a two damage attack which means even if you have both in hand and use them you're only doing four damage to the ghoul priest so you have to have a way of moving to get liter to then make those into two three damage hits and you'll have taken at least one hit from the ghoul priest or yeah you need to work out some other way of doing it it's a nice little puzzle i like thinking about that puzzle of how how do you kill the ghoul priest yes the gathering's a good solo scenario just for putting a deck through its paces yeah it gives you normally enough time to prepare but you know that there is a fight coming up so yeah i hope that i hope that helps or is a step in the right direction nathan so we hope you enjoyed this episode if you want to get in touch with us we're drawn to the flame on facebook we're drawn to the flame on twitter and we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. You can also sponsor us, support us on Patreon. We're www.patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame. Thank you again to our fantastic patrons. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am everywhere as Unitled. I'm on Twitter, I'm on the uh, subreddit, and I'm on the Discord as Unitled. So say hello. And I'm on Twitter as FB, EPH underscore BEE. Also say hello. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Um, Do you hear that drilling? I did. That sounded like a plane taking off. I hope it's like a one-off. Let's just keep rolling and wait and see. Surely that's not going to be like a thousand holes to be drilled. <laughs> Sounds like he's drilling holes in the wall. But how right. how many would you do, though, in, in a drilling session? Okay, he's up to three. <laughs> it's got to be an even number, shouldn't it? The, the other sort of counterpoint to what you've just said about you need to be able to do everything. There's someone at the door. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. With a hammer. Yeah. A smaller health pool. Someone's shouting as well. Yeah. Was he quite proud proud of his armory? Shall I make that point again just so that it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll try now. The counterpoint to that though, I think, is that Oh for God's sake! <laughs> I'm really sorry about this. That's all right, don't worry. Carnage. Well, 
person who'll be really sorry is me when I try and edit this episode. <laughs> If you've made it this far, listener, well done. It was a pretty tricky episode to edit because of all of the external noise, so thank you for bearing with the different noisy bits and things like that. I've been doing this edit soon after our gigantic 33-player Labyrinths of Lunacy event in London, and I just wanted to do a tiny shout-out to... Florian, Sean, Philip, Robin, Steve, Joseph, Nick, Rebecca, Ren, Joe, Richard, Sean, Andy, Loki, Chris, Simon, Ben, Rob, Matt, Glynn, Ian, Alex, Sarah, Allison, Andrew, Rory, Rom, Jaya, Florence, Dan, Richard, Brandon, and another Dan. Thank you so much for being there. It was just incredible to have that big a group. I think it was the largest Arkham event outside of the United States ever which is kind of incredible if that's the case. So yeah, thank you so much for being there and hopefully see you at whatever next event we manage to do with Drawn to the Flame. Thanks for listening. Bye.